Good morning. Welcome back to Literature 209, Graphical Lid and Society and History, otherwise known as the Comics Course here at Miskatonic Remote Education Program. I am your professor, Hamby. This is my TA, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. And today we're going to do the first of two class sessions of, uh, on Shang-Chi as we head towards the release of the Marvel movie. I had been thinking about, actually for the first time in two years, leaving my office to go see the movie. Um, but with COVID cases back on the rise, I've decided not to. Um, now, we missed a class session last week because I was sick. I was horribly sick, unfortunately. Um, and when that happens, I'm not going to record a session. Now, I do have a few updates for people, however. One, I did get a lot of uh, emails from people concerned about me being sick. I appreciate it. Uh, we did track down the problem. Uh, Dr. Hersher from the Antiquities Department brought over some items they had picked up in St. Petersburg to show them to me, and I turned out to get a uh, fungus in my lungs that attempted to kill me. Now, uh, I know that some people would just consider this unfortunate and say that I should not let people into either from either antiquities or ancient languages into my office, and they're probably right. Uh, but clearly this was an attack by my nemesis. Vlad, it's not going to work. I'm sorry I stole that ash can out from under your fingertips in Cairo in 1984. Um, but even if I die, you will not get it from me. So, we will move on. Uh, I have not found Thomas's SoundCloud account. I still am trying to find it. I understand that he's doing something interesting with Icelandic beat poetry. Huh. Yeah, I'm curious about that. However, I have another Thomas update for people. Um, uh, Eon B brought me my mail along with my uh, midweek uh, food supply the other day. And Thomas had mailed me this from London. I mean, he's getting around uh, Antarctica, London. Interesting. Oh, he's going to have Antarctica. No, no, I think he's still there. He mailed it before he left for Antarctica. It apparently oh. was held up in customs. Um, it is a green goblet, a huge green goblet with Dionysian sort of features on it. I don't think it's particularly old. Had a very cute note with it. Uh, very kind of Thomas has said, you deserve this for making me what I am now. Um, I thought that was very sweet of him. I'm going to put some Japanese uh, muscat gummies in it. Seems appropriate with the Dionysian features. And uh, thank you, Thomas. So very kind of him. And kind of him to acknowledge uh, my contributions to his development. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's jump straight into Shang-Chi. So, as we talk about Shang-Chi, it is hard to separate the, if you will, Asian-ness of the character from the character. Uh, the fact that he is Chinese and practices traditional Chinese martial arts uh, and incorporates a number of ideas of philosophies uh, that originate from China are all integral to his cult, to his character, and therefore our cultural attitudes towards the Chinese are integral to understanding how the character has been represented over the years. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to talk about it. And I'm going to start with Marco Polo, who was born 1254, lived to a 1324. And we have on the screen what would have been during his life a well-accepted map of the world. And you can see it looks nothing like our maps of today. Uh, this particular map was in Europe called the Tabula Rogeriana, 
Uh, it was actually originally made under a different name because it was made by a Muslim scholar, Muhammad al-Idrisi, in 1154. Um, but this would have been how people thought of the shape of the world. And if you start over on the far left, uh, we have Italy. And if you have over on the far right, China. And Marco Polo's father was a merchant who spent decades away from home, traveling across the world, traveling not just to China, um, but there's a sort of modern myth, I think, that what traders did was kind of an old world equivalent of what they do today. Pick up stuff in one place, drop it off in the other place, pick up stuff there, come back home. No, he wandered. He was gone years and years and years at a time because he wouldn't have just gone to China. He would have also gone to India. He would have gone to Thailand. He would have gone anywhere he could have made additional trades. Uh, when you're, and he would have taken places from one place to trade to another. It was a very difficult career. We're drinking raspberry tea, by the way, and eating these wonderful green tea Kit Kats. Um, so where do the travels of Marco Polo come from? I mean, he was clearly this extremely accomplished uh, merchant and uh, explorer, right? Well, not really. I mean, he was traveling the same routes his father did. In fact, most of his time in China was spent with his father. He was literally a little kid when he was sent off um, traveling with his father. And the reason we have the stories of Marco Polo now is that he came back as an adult to his hometown, found them in a war with a neighboring city-state, bought a boat to jump into the war, was completely incompetent, immediately captured, and thrown in jail with the goal of ransoming him back to his family. Now, while he was in jail, he was in a cell with a writer who was only modestly successful, listened to Marco Polo's stories, and said, I could sell this. And we know that he did not do exact transcriptions. In fact, there are sections of text that are taken directly from his own earlier works. So he self-plagiarized. And he sold these as the works of Marco Polo in order to give them credence. But A, we don't know how much Marco Polo said was true. In fact, there are some scholars who've studied him fairly extensively who argue that it's all fake, and he never went to any of these places. Even those who give him more credence than that uh, claim that there are sections entirely made up. <coughs> and we don't know if he made them up or the transcriber did, because there's good evidence to suggest that even though he was Italian, that he believed in the Irish tradition of not letting the truth stand in the way of a good story. Um, but I want to read a quote from Marco Polo that's on this next slide. It says, quote, If you put together all the Christians in the world with their emperors and their kings, the whole of these Christians, I, and throw in the Saracens to boot, would not have such power or be able to do so much as this Kublai, who is the lord of all the Tartars in the world, end quote. Saracens being essentially the Muslims, and Kublai here being who we call Kublai Khan. Um, uh, essentially, the emperor of China, although their political situation is a little more complicated than that. And the Tartars essentially being the Chinese. Um, he was trying to create this image of hugeness, of power. I mean, Europeans, there's a reason we have a term called Eurocentric. There's a reason why there is an effort in academia to move away from interpreting the world from a Eurocentric lens. Um, and the people then would have been even worse. They saw the white Christian world as the source of all culture, all 
academic and intellectual achievements, and all, every place else in the world was just a bunch of savages who probably were just, you know, banging sticks together, hoping to make fire or something. So Marco Polo is saying, no, he has armies, huge armies. He wrote about the palaces. He wrote about the running water. Um, he wrote about the systems that transferred natural gas for heat. I mean, so he's making people go, wow, this is amazing. And it had a long impacting effect on our minds. However, this if you read carefully through the travels of Marco Polo, um, there is a continuing underlying uh, uh, theme. Now, whether this came from Marco Polo or the other writer, I don't know. But he did not want to alienate his audience. He wanted to amaze them. He wanted them to go, wow. But he also wanted them to feel good about themselves. So these were still savages. They were non-Christian. I mean, so... You know, if we talk about, you know, like American Indians as noble savages, then these were cultured savages. They had culture, they had art, they had science, but there was something degenerate about them still. Something horrible. Because they weren't Christian. And they, they probably couldn't help it, but they just didn't have the access to... The, the fine, upstanding moral fiber that the white Christians of Europe had. And, and this was a continuing message, not just of the Chinese, but of all the cultures present in the travels of Marco Polo. Uh, now, as we move forward in time and we hit the 19th century, we have more direct interaction with the Chinese. Obviously, by now, the British were colonizing China, uh, and there were many Chinese immigrants here in the United States. Uh, railroads and gold were big things, especially in California. Now, California is, of course, on the western coast of the U.S. It is the part of the United States closest to China, excepting uh, Alaska. And many were immigrating to the U.S. for a better life, for careers. And by 1852, Chinese immigrants were 20% of the population in California. And this caused a lot of conflict. Uh, and, and these prejudices still abounded. And so people struck back against the Chinese and racism was a major problem. In fact, there were multiple taxes that targeted the Chinese, specifically in California, probably the worst of which was the foreign miners tax of 1852. It charged Chinese men who were working in the mines $3 a month, which in their time was a lot of money. Just for being Chinese? Yep. And basically to discourage them from the jobs. They were good jobs that were well-paying, and it existed to discourage them so that the jobs were available for white guys. Yeah. Um, now, add on to this the other things, like the California Supreme Court ruling in 1854 of the People versus Hall. Now, basically, uh, many years before the California Supreme Court had ruled that blacks and Native Americans could not testify in court because they were a bunch of savages and unreliable. Um, which, of course, meant that people could do whatever they wanted to Native Americans and blacks, and they literally could not testify in court in their own defense if they protected themselves. And in 1854, in the People versus Hall, the California Supreme Court extended that to Chinamen. 
which made them, I, I, I was about to say, a secondary class of citizens, but not even secondary. They just weren't citizens. They were serfs. Yeah, not citizens. They didn't have the basic rights of citizens. Um, and it just, the hits just kept coming. It wasn't even limited to that. Um, the Page Act of 1875 uh, created a started creating a bachelor society in the U.S. because it, it extremely limited immigration from Asia, uh, including <clears throat> any woman who could engage in prostitution. Could could. Now, by definition, any woman can engage in prostitution. So, just no woman. So, maybe a Chinese woman could manage to immigrate if she had a lot of money, and people would argue. But if they were of a common class, then customs was perfectly authorized to just say, nope, you can't immigrate, you're a commoner, you might end up being a prostitute. So, this was creating a bachelor society of men, of, a, of Chinese men, without Chinese wives. And apparently that wasn't enough. So seven years later, in 1882, um, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. And that just forbid immigration from China at all. Let's not just include women. Let's include everyone. Right. So, you know, um, an improvement? Question mark? Guess it's equal in the racism? Yeah. I, so, you know, they were racist... And misogynist and now just racist. Uh, yeah. So, this was America and the Chinese leading up into the early 20th century. Um, now, we're going to jump back to England for a second when we talk about the character of Fu Manchu. Now, Fu Man when I was growing up, I actually was not conscious of the fact that Fu Manchu was a series of novels. I heard Fu Manchu. I heard of the Fu Manchu mustache, that thin, long mustache that came down on either side of the mouth. Oh, and that's where that comes from? Yes, the character of Fu Manchu. And Fu Manchu was an evil villain created by Sax Romer, uh, originally in a series of short stories that were collected into a novel published in England as The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu in 1913. And we have the cover here that shows the iconic Fu Manchu with that big, open brow and a woman by his side. Um, now, in the U.S., it was published as... under a different... Uh, the Insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. And it was adapted into a film, The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu, and became a very long-running series of novels that were even, I believe, continued after Sax Romer's death by other writers. And there was a regular cast of good guys, British nobility sorts, of course, who countered Fu Manchu's schemes. And Fu Manchu was a sort of criminal mastermind. He very much came from that same stock of character as uh, Moriarty uh, uh, in the Arthur Conan Doyle stories, yeah. except here he's put forward. Now, he's not always seen. There are whole books where Fu Manchu himself never shows up. You know, the good guys are just dealing with his agents. And Fu Manchu you know, is smart, he knows poisons, he knows funguses, he employs thugs and assassins, um, and he's a manipulator from the shadows. And it goes back to that idea that started back in the time of Marco Polo of this figure who's highly intelligent, but evil, degenerate. 
and you see it in his features. His features look subhuman, animalistic, almost regressed, like if a caveman were intelligent. Um, and, and this is a conscious decision on their part in representing the villain. Now, this is not necessarily a major problem for a villain, but when it starts representing a whole class of people, a whole group, an ethnic group, uh, it starts becoming a problem. Now, these were very popular and uh, well-known to people, and this is 1913, and continue to be popular for decades and decades, which will become important. Uh, I also note that the interaction by Western writers of, of elevating uh, uh, figures, Eastern figures, with a bit of white influence started here. Because Dr. Fu Manchu, yes, he's very smart. Yes, he knows all these sciences. But why? Well, even though he's Chinese, he went to Western universities. So, you know, I mean, of course, if he was just Chinese, he couldn't have learned this stuff in China because they're, you know, it's not like they have Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard. Um, And these are the schools that Fu Manchu went to. So... This was Fu Manchu. Now, we're going to put Fu Manchu aside a little bit to talk about a couple of world wars and what happened in regard to those and interaction with the U.S. Um, now, World War One. the big thing I want to point out is Japan, the nation of Japan, became the Japanese Empire. They invaded Korea. They invaded Russia. They invaded the Republic of China. They became a world power in World War One. Uh, I'm not going to go in detail into the politics of World War I here, but Russia was seen as a world power. They were expected to crush Japan. Uh, Japan hurt them bad and stole lots of territory from them, and the two sides had to go to an armistice table in Portsmouth, Virginia uh, to sign a non-aggression pact. And many people consider the Japanese to have won that war, including, at the time, popular opinion in Europe. So Japan became very powerful and earned a deep, deep enmity with China, which many people still feel today. Now, it is a different situation today. In fact, when the COVID crisis started in China, I have a Chinese friend who said that when the first COVID cases were breaking out in China, uh, in the region that she lives, the first international care packages came from Japan. And that was a big deal to a lot of people she knew. And a sign that, you know, things had changed in terms... Uh, but, but that shows you how deep the anonymity was. And we're talking about a hundred years later, and some people still feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as World War II starts, we, of course, were fighting the Japanese. It was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1939 that triggered the U.S. engagement in World War II. We had stayed out of it until then. And on the screen here, I have a couple of Allied propaganda posters because... Uh, the Allied leadership wanted to make it clear to civilians that the Chinese were our friends, that they weren't like the Japanese, because there was a tendency to group everybody in Asia, or or at least the Far East, under one umbrella. So one of them is a blue-tinted poster that says, This man is your friend. He fights for freedom. And it shows a Chinese soldier and a photograph. Another one shows a drawing of a Chinese soldier and says, On our side, with us, all the way. Um... Because the enemy of our enemy was our friend. They were enemies with the Japanese. The Japanese were our enemies. Therefore, the Chinese were our allies. And this is World War II. 
However, that doesn't mean those old attitudes just disappeared. Captain America number five. This was the first appearance of a Chinese character I could find in Marvel Comics. Now, back then it was being published as Atlas Comics. Um, here's the thing a lot of people actually don't know about Captain America. Uh, in the Captain America comics, as they were originally published, he did not fight the Nazis in Europe. He did? He did not go to Europe. He fought... He, he basically acted as an intelligence agent fighting Nazi saboteurs in the United States. What? He was not on the front line of the war. Yes, the movies lied to you. I'm sorry. This is bullshit, man. Well, the movies are their own alternate universe, I'm afraid. So, here we have the villain Fang. And again, we see those similar to Fu Manchu features. That sloped brow, those animalistic features, those things that look regressed, like they might have belonged to some earlier, less evolved form of humanity. Um, and again, even though at this point we were saying that the Chinese were our friends, we still had this. Uh, it should also be noted in World War II that finally the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed uh, because we wanted a symbol of good faith with the Chinese that they were our friends. Now, at the same time, we were rounding up Japanese and putting them in internment camps. Now, the Chinese influence in the war was huge. Um, in the Bay Area of San Francisco, which was one of the major places for building, you know, big, big war boats, you know, uh, aircraft carriers and things like that, 15% of the, of the workers were Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, they were organizing, they were there were a lot of people wanting to flee the war in Asia, and this brought in a lot of new blood, and the Chinese were very eager to show their patriotism and the newfound love for them in America. They bought war bonds en masse. They were hugely patriotic. Um, they walked around with buttons that said, I'm not Japanese. Um, and, and so we had this, I mean, it was a reality. Mm -hmm. Um, but then we had another sudden reversal after World War II. Uh, it, here we have a political cartoon from the 1950s that says communist China, and it's represented as a giant, uh, octopus with its tendrils going all over Asia to Tibet, uh, Malaysia, Indochina, Korea. And we had entered the Cold War. Russia and China were both our allies in World War II, and now they were both our enemies. And they were big, big enemies on the global stage. Now, at the same time, however, there was a separate China. Uh, the old leadership of China had fled as the communist regime really took control of mainland China, and they fled to an island where they set up what they called the Republic of China. And that is what we call Taiwan. And so the U.S. was in this interesting position where... We didn't call it China. We didn't say China was evil. We said communist China was evil. But we officially recognized what we'd call Taiwan, the Republic of China, as the legitimate Chinese government and said they were our friends. So this was to some people mixed messages. And it did not take long before the Taiwanese were trading with us in electronics and things. Now, let's go back to Japan. We opened up the internment camps. And by the way, there's a phenomenal graphic novel uh, written by George Takai of Star Trek about those internment camps. 
We may cover it uh, in the class at some point. Because um, I think nonfiction graphic literature is important too. But Japan was now our allies. We fought them in World War II. They were why we got into World War II. Um, but there were two major political factions in Japan, the Todoha and the Kodoha. And one of them had been the aggressors in World War II, but the other were our allies. And they rose back to power. So we flipped. Uh, uh, we have this complicated situation with China. And the Japanese are our friends again. And part this myth began, uh, and I've seen some arguments that it was actually intentional, to create this idea of a model minority about the Japanese. That yes, they're Asian and they're different, but they're different in good ways. They're smart, they're hardworking, they're honorable, they don't argue. It, and a lot of these things have some basis in Japanese culture. I mean, the Japanese tend to be a fairly stoic people. Um, they tend to value working together, things like that. Notice I'm using phrases like tend to. People are complicated. Which means not everyone's going to fit a stereotype. And even if they feel pressure to obey a cultural norm, doesn't mean personally they actually feel that way. Mm -hmm. But with stereotypes, we make assumptions about how people actually feel, and we cast very wide nets and all these things. Anyway, so this happened with the Japanese. Now, to some degree, it, however, influenced perception of other countries as well, and kind of encompassed some of the Chinese as well, which is how we began getting some of these so-called positive stereotypes of Chinese and Japanese. And... Uh, you can't see it because I'm holding a teacup, I, uh, but, I, but I'm putting sarcastic air quotes around positive because even if these are arguably positive traits, when you start stereotyping people, it becomes very dangerous because you have to be very... It's legitimate to stereotype when you're making an informational shortcut, but you know it could be wrong. But when you actually start believing that stereotype is a definition of people you're not allowing them to be human anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. So now we're going to actually finally get back into the comics. Ooh. Uh, and you're an art person, Rowan. So uh, up here I have a cover of Tales of Suspense, number 50, 1964. Uh, I believe this was written by Stan Lee. And it's the introduction of a character called the Mandarin. And he was a Chinese supervillain. And trust me, I am getting around to Shang-Chi here. But this is important. Um, and we're only going to go up through Marvel Knights in today's class session. Um, but the Mandarin will be important because he is presented as the father of Shang-Chi in the upcoming film. Now, I actually like this art. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not great art by today's standards. But what do you think, Rowan? We see the Mandarin of this robed figure in purple and green in this elaborate golden and red chair... There are soldiers on this curved walk thing behind him that's completely impractical, but looks cool. He's just lazily throwing a finger out, creating a beam that lowers a portuculus uh, to trap Iron Man. I think it's a great cover design. Yeah, I like it. Um, so this is the introduction of the Iron Man, 1964. One of the defining traits of him, and we see a close-up here of some of the fingers on his ring, was that he wore ten different rings. Now, if you watch the first Iron Man film, uh, they had this terrorist group called the Ten Rings, which was a reference to the Mandarin. And then in the third Iron Man film, we had a false Mandarin played by Tony Slattery, who I thought did a brilliant job of it. 
um, which turned out to be a con by uh, an oil company and all that. So each of these rings had a different power, and these rings... Uh, actually, it turned out, were from an alien spaceship that he'd scavenged. Now, here's an idea. He's a Chinese bad guy. He's a Chinese villain. He's smart. But his threat didn't really come from himself. It came from scavenged alien technology. He couldn't really come up with it himself. Um, now, we have a close-up of the Mandarin. He's going to do a karate chop because he's an Asian character, and therefore he must be doing karate. And they refer to it as karate in here, which, by the way, is a... What do they call it? Karate or judo? I can't remember. Either way, karate and judo were both Japanese martial arts terms, not Chinese, but we'll let that pass. Um, he's wearing purple and green, which I challenge you to show me a hero in comics wearing purple and green. Rowan's thinking. Coming up blanks. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, lots of villains. Uh, Kang, the Joker, we can go on and on. Um, he's wearing this weird mask thing that is like a skull cap with something over his eyes and some texture, and then a little purple strip that goes down under his eyes and over his nose. But you couldn't really call it a mask. It, it, what it looks like is he has a skull cap because he didn't want to get his hair wet while showering. And then it's connected to a little nose strip like people use to keep their nose open so they don't snore when they're breathing. So what we know about the Mandarin is he's fussy about his hair and he snores. Because um, that's not a mask. No, if you wore that to a robbery, people would go, dude, we know it's you. <laughs> And why would a warlord in his own castle be wearing a mask anyway? Because um, he's fussy about his hair and nose. I, yeah, well, I mean, a beauty mask, I understand. I mean, I, 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 he looks like he has good skin. You know, yeah. he, he probably exfoliates. Yeah. Um, but, it, and here's the final sin for me. So he's a Chinese warlord. He's completely disdainful of the West. Mm -hmm. he, he, he's disdainful of other Chinese also. Mm-hmm. And he's wearing a Roman English letter M on his chest. Which, you know, do you see historical portraits of Henry VIII wearing a giant H on his chest? No. You know, generally when you're a warlord or you're a king, you just kind of assume people are supposed to know who you are. You don't feel a need to wear a giant letter on your chest. You don't feel a need to have people search through their minds. What name starts with M, M? Right. Could this be the boss? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, no, no. this is something that young, you do with young children. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, it's ridiculous. And it's the same thing done with the Monkey Prince, which I mentioned a class session or two ago. Which annoys me. And he's Chinese, so why a Roman English M? And why does anyone do it in the first place? It's just strange. It's just strange. It was the 1960s. Now, we're going to go... We talked about the Cold War. This is a panel from the introduction of the Mandarin. The Chinese soldiers are standing uh, outside uh, the Mandarin's castle. Iron Man has come in to investigate the Mandarin. They see Iron Man drop out of the plane, but at a great distance. And so they don't know it's Iron Man. And they didn't see a parachute. So, uh, you have to imagine them talking in the most racist way possible. 
No, there is no need to bother. His parachute did not open. He plunged to his death from so great a height. His fellow replies. The bungling democracies cannot even make shorts that work correctly. Now, the only thing they're missing is, you know, eating some dim sum. Um, or, or, you know, something. Um, no, but dim sum is actual Chinese. You know, this would have been, they would have shown them eating uh, a, a New York Chinese of some form. Um, and the art is, is, I mean, if you were going to put in, the, in, in a dictionary a heading for racist comic art, I think you could take this panel and put it in there. Their eyes are so slanted they could not actually see. We don't have pupils. It's just slits. And, and I understand that ethnicon people have kind of what are sometimes called almond-shaped eyes. But they do actually have to open them to see. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they have this sort of slack-jawed expression on their face. Going back to that this idea that they're kind of subhuman, that they're regressed, that they're childlike. But, um... Now, we move forward uh, from 1964 to 1965, uh, up to Tales of Suspense, number 62. Uh, now the title is being split between Iron Man and Captain America, with two stories. Uh, the Mandarin's been very successful. He's been popular. He's been in a bunch of issues between his first appearance and now. And so we get the origin of the Mandarin. And on the cover here, we see Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America, the origin of the Mandarin, and he's kind of exploding out of this thing of uh, uh, clouds from behind the Great Wall of China. Uh, now, he doesn't represent the Chinese government, but he's the major Chinese threat. Um, and he's kind of lunging towards Iron Man here. So, Tales of Suspense 62, 1965... We get him still wearing this weird-ass head thing. And he's explaining his origins. And he says, My father was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Because, you know, Genghis Khan is like the only famous Chinese guy from history, you know, Americans know, probably. Because we, we stopped paying attention if it didn't involve us. Well, to be fair, Chinese, Japanese, Thai, I mean... Eastern history is not taught in our schools at all. Mm -hmm. Period. Like, when I went to school, it was like, hey, there's the Tigris River, the Yellow River, the Chinese existed. Okay, that's over. Now we want you to memorize every English king that was ever born. Have fun. Right. Um, so, to Genghis Khan, continuing what he said. Mm -hmm. uh, but he married beneath him. He was very disdainful. Uh, he was foolish enough to marry a high-born English woman. The gods themselves must have been displeased, for when I was born, an idol fell upon my father, killing him instantly. So, you know, they're emphasizing this idea that his birth was uh, uh, followed by these evil omens and all this. But we again get this idea, like we did with Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu was dangerous because he went to eastern uh, uh, he grew up in the East, but he went to Western schools. And so he was educated in the West and had the intellect of a Western man. Here we have this same sort of idea again. The Mandarin is dangerous, but he's not really Asian. He's half white. 
Now, it was okay for him to be all Chinese when he was first introduced and probably a one-off villain, but now that he's become recurring, now that he's really sticking around as a long-term villain, we got to respect him. And that means he can't, he needs to be part white. Um, and when we were discussing this earlier, Rowan, you, you said that's something they're changing for the Shang-Chi movie, right? Yeah, aren't they changing it and having a different actress play his mom and she's Asian? Yes, Michelle Yeoh is playing it, uh, uh, playing the mother, um, w- which she's an amazing actress. Uh, I-, I would watch anything she's in. I was going to watch Shang-Chi anyway, but even if I didn't want to watch Shang-Chi, I would have watched it once I heard Michelle Yeoh was in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also made, a, if you have not seen them because your generation are a bunch of cultural degenerates, um, there, she's done a number of phenomenal kung fu action movies. Um, yes, a- a- and it is probably not surprising that the Shang Chi movie is likely to be more culturally represent representative of uh, of actual Chinese people, uh, because frankly, the Chinese movie market is huge for Disney. For everybody these days. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean they're going to do a good job. We have seen in recent years some movies made by Western companies apparently decide that they don't need to bring Asian people on board to represent Asian characters. You know, or Asian writers or Asian directors and just do awful jobs. Um, and Disney's been guilty of some of that themselves. But I, I think with Shang-Chi, they have probably uh, learn to avoid those landmines. Hopefully. So we're going to move forward uh, about five more years into 1972. Uh, then President of the United States, Richard Nixon, visited China. Um, Nixon was ended up being a fairly divisive figure within the United States, uh, but he was a good diplomat, and he got along very well with the Chinese, and it was the first step towards normalizing relations with the communist Chinese government, which was considered very important um, both for future trade, which has become a big deal. I mean, the fact is that now, um, 50 years later, the U.S. and the Chinese economies are so intertwined uh, that it's ridiculous. Um, And we would not be able to shut down one of our governments without probably destroying the other. Mm -hmm. Um, which is why warfare is moving into cyber warfare, but that's a whole other issue. But anyway, at the time, Richard Nixon was visiting China, and this was a big deal uh, in the U.S. People looked at this and went, huh, they're kind of supposed to be our friends now. I mean, back then, what the president did when they did things like this had wide-ranging cultural impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, there's a great documentary on Hulu, if anybody wants to watch it, uh, about General Zhou's Chicken which was way more interesting than I thought it would be, and and talked about this phenomena of where after Nixon's visit to China, people began getting interested in Chinese culture again, uh, and in fact, uh, how this was mirrored in the U.S. consumption of Chinese food, both American Chinese and real Chinese. Uh, It's an interesting documentary. I don't remember the exact title, but if you search Hulu for General Zhou's Chicken, you'll find it. And this visit... uh, was the culmination of the Nixon administration's attempt to find relations between the U.S. and China after their isolation for so long. It lasted for seven days, and he visited three Chinese cities. It it was a very big deal. I mean, we'd had 25 years of no communication. And this was happening at the same time as a couple of other 
really critical things, one of which was that the British were still in control of Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong economy was booming. They were doing great financially. And because they were doing great financially, their film industry did well. And this meant a huge jump in the Chinese film industry, both in earlier sort of uh, mystical martial arts films, as well as a new genre of grittier kung fu films, as well as some that bridge the gap between them. The Shaw Brothers became especially famous for their kung fu films in this time period. And these began being imported to the U.S., especially in urban areas. Now, these weren't being shown in, you know, the movie theaters that were showing the normal, you know, A and B roles of Hollywood. These were being shown in urban theaters that showed third-run films and that kind of thing. And this began a connection uh, that we'll talk about a little bit more later uh, between an urban African American, largely African American community in the U.S. in these films. And you see that. I mean, you can look at things like the Netflix um, Luke Cage series and see that. You can see that one of, one of the iconic hip-hop groups is called the Wu-Tang Clan that named themselves after a classic kung fu film. Um, but it had an impact, and it captured American fascination. And just eight months, just eight months after Nixon's trip to China, Kung Fu, the TV series, premiered in October of 1972. Now, this starred a white guy, David Carradine, as a Chinese monk uh, who practiced uh, kung fu. For those who don't know, the reason that martial arts, uh, uh, kung fu, are traditionally associated with monks in China is that supposedly these Buddhist monasteries... um, Oh, we we have a visitor. Say hello, Harry. Hold on. That is one of the Miskatonic hounds. Uh, he has been coming by to get Japanese treats from me. Um, and I kind of figured it was a good idea to make friends with them. So anyway, um, for those who don't know, the, the store, the popular story is, and I don't know if uh, historical scholars would say this is true, but it, uh, I've heard it repeated many times, that during periods of lawlessness, when the central government was weak in China, uh, bandits were a major problem, they would often attack monasteries to steal their food, and so the monks developed traditions of martial arts to defend themselves. Uh, and by the time we reached the 19th century, and then into the 20th century, uh, these wandering monks were often represented as heroes, kind of in a vein similar to gunslingers in the Old West, mm -hmm. at least in popular fiction. So, unsurprisingly, a formula that worked well was transplanting one of these monks into the Old West and letting him wander around and, and deal with evil. Now, they did kind of explain why he looked white, because he was half white. He had a white mother. Um, it's always the mom, too. Not always. There are some cases where it's reversed, but it is usually the mom. So, this was a highly successful and popular TV show. Now, it wasn't just white guys doing it. Um, 
Lee Jonfan is probably better known to the world as Bruce Lee. He had a huge success with his first film, The Big Boss. Uh, and he was known to American audiences as Cato from The Green Hornet. But his movie that just changed the world was Enter the Dragon, released in 1973. Uh, if you have never seen Enter the Dragon, I recommend it. It is an amazing film. This is not a stunt guy. He was a real martial artist. He opened his own chain of studios in the U.S., he criticized traditional martial arts as being impractical and developed his own called Jet Kundo. Um, and unfortunately, he died young. Uh, he passed away in July of 1973. This movie was actually released posthumously after his death. Aww. Uh, and he left behind a family, including the son Brandon Lee, who had a too short film career when he died in an accident in the making of a movie called The Crow. Uh, which is also a great film. Uh, but we're going to move forward now. Uh, December of 1973, just a few months after Enter the Dragon was released, Marvel Special Edition number 15. They put Marvel Special Edition in small text at the top, and then in big text, The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. And we see a figure in these red robes with a little bit of uh, gold on the... Uh, edges of them and he has a red headband and he is kicking butt he is fighting a whole bunch of guys while hanging over him is this just malicious figure again this sort of degenerate long chinese face with these long fingernails just hovering ethereally above him and we find out who this is on the very first page where we see shang chi master of kung fu the son of Fu Manchu. So, in the movie, and we'll talk more about this next week, the Mandarin is the father, but what happened at Marvel was Marvel wanted to license the TV show Kung Fu. Stan Lee was a big name at Marvel at the time. He was a, a senior editor or whatever his official title was. In fact, you can see here on the page, Stan Lee presents. Stan Lee chased TV as popular entertainment. In fact, uh, it's well known that a number of characters were introduced to Marvel in the 70s because he wanted to capture things that were popular in TV. Kung Fu was popular. He won the rights to it. He couldn't get it. But he was able to contact the Saxe-Romer estate and license Fu Manchu and those characters. So he introduced a new character as a hero, Shang-Chi. Um, we also see here on the screen... This very second page of Shang-Chi's origin issue is completely dedicated to Fu Manchu. He was a figure people knew. But just in case you were in doubt, he's in very old-style Chinese traditional robes with the Fu Manchu mustache. And in case you weren't clear that he was evil, surrounding him are figures like a skull, a spider, and a what looks like a hybrid between a cow, a rat, and a goblin. <laughs> kind of like it. it it's interesting isn't it that back end is bulbous like the back end of a cow mm -hmm. it's weird Yeah. Um, but anyway so Fu Manchu was a figure people knew introducing a character that was the son of Fu Manchu is like oh we're getting a hero who's the son of a villain it's a built in conflict um, and Marvel went with it for all it's worth in his introductory issue you find out that Shu that Shang-Chi was raised in seclusion. 
His name supposedly translates as something like Rising Spirit. Uh, someone who actually speaks Chinese would have to tell me if that's true or not. I don't know. Um, and that he was raised to believe that his father, Fu Manchu, was this great nobleman that all these other people were working to stop. Um, and remember I talked about that group of British guys that were stopping Fu Manchu? Well, because they got the rights to Fu Manchu, they also got the supporting cast. And so we see those characters from the Fu Manchu novels now as older men, and Shang-Chi assassinates one of them, thinking that it's a villain out to stop his good guy dad. But of course, people show up, they talk to him, he goes, whoops, my bad. Oopsie. I mean, it never occurred to me that, you know, a good guy wouldn't send people out to assassinate people like this in their homes in the middle of the night in their sick beds. Yeah. In this incarnation, Shang-Chi wasn't the sharpest knife in the knife block. Just saying. Incredible martial artist. Very spiritually calm. Intelligence. Maybe his dump stat. Um, he didn't get a chance to re-roll it. No. And in this panel, we see Shang-Chi approach his mother. Um, and he approaches her and says, because he, cause he's dealing with this conflict of finding out his father is evil. I am troubled, mother. I must speak to you at length. Notice by now in, in films like Kung Fu, they are not talking like this anymore. And those old Chinese racist accents that represented either the evil mastermind or the sniveling... A uh, 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 passive, you know, slave, are replaced by this more strong, somber tone that David Carradine used in Kung Fu. I am troubled, mother. I must speak to you at length. I have traveled thousands of miles from England to ask you about my father. And um, what we've, if you look at this art, you may think to yourself, his mom looks kind of honky. I mean, she kind of looks like the flesh-colored crayon in the old boxes before they, you know, before they st stop calling things Indian red and stuff. Um, and sure enough, it turns out his mother is American because we have an Asian hero, and so therefore he has to be half white. So... I'm so happy they're changing this movie. Yes, yes. No, I don't have a problem with mixed-race characters. Mm -hmm. The fact is we have mixed-race people in the world. They should see themselves. In fact... Uh, if you're interested uh, uh, and you'd like to move beyond your generation's fascination with TikTok and um, uh, eating Tide Pods or whatever the hell you people do, um, there are some great uh, articles about the Olympics from this past week and about how mixed-race Japanese athletes are helping break down social barriers for those of mixed race in Japan. That's cool. Yes, it's, it's very interesting. Um, so I do think representation of mixed race is important. But what I, I'm sh showing it here, not because a single instance of this is bad, but there's an ongoing pattern. Yeah, which is why I'm saying I'm glad they're changing it right. from the movie because of what it stands for, yeah. not the fact that mixed race is bad. Also, it appears that in the movie, it looks like Michelle Yeoh's character is going to be a counterpart to the Mandarin as the evil father um, because Shang-Chi says something about... You know, being a, I am his son, but also yours. Uh, here, the mother is evil. She got together with Fu Manchu 
because she wants his power and she's totally down with Shang-Chi being an evil assassin. Which, I do have a question. If you're going, if you're an evil mastermind and you're raising your child to be an assassin, why do you raise him to be a hero? You, you would think it would be more effective to raise him as a villain and work with you. Unless you think this will keep him from backstabbing you, maybe? I, I don't know. He clearly didn't think the plan through. Yeah. So, as we move on, I just wanted to point out some art here in this first issue. Um, hold on one second. I'm gonna... So, I wanted to show a page of art uh, uh, from this Marvel Comics Presents number 15 because it shows some of the great kinetic energy. Oh, and I apologize. Uh, the, just to let you know, the reason I stopped was the rats in the walls were getting really bad again. Um, they occasionally run through the old pneumatic tube system that was installed in the 20s and just really create a ruckus. They really don't take care of this building, do they? Not, not really, no. I think they're hoping it'll just collapse around me and they'll finally be rid of me. <laughs> Um, but that's a whole other story. So anyway, uh, the art is just amazingly kinetic. So we have a page without dialogue here and Shang-Chi is fighting this giant sumo muscle bound character. Uh, there's some char Chinese characters scattered on the page. I don't know if they actually say anything. I mean, they might've just pulled them out of like a tattoo art book or something. Um, but the art itself of Shang-Chi fighting is just amazing and wonderful. Uh, there are times where the proportions are a little distorted, and I suspect that the anatomy could use a little work, especially on the middle panel where the foot is flying out to connect with the back of the sumo wrestler's head. It's a little wonky there. Uh, he would definitely break his leg. Yeah, but... Overall, it's great. And the bottom one where Shang-Chi has grabbed the ponytail and is pulling it forward, just phenomenal art. And you can see how they really wanted to emphasize the kung fu aspect and keep that action-oriented aspect in the comics. <laughs> now, here we have the introduction of a character called Midnight Sun, S-O-N. The adopted son of Fang Chu that was raised alongside Shang-Chi, but raised to be the assassin that Shang-Chi wasn't. So why didn't they send Midnight Sun out to kill that guy instead of Shang-Chi? Why didn't they raise them the same way? And apparently, although raised together, Midnight Sun knew about all the evil stuff. But, you know, Midnight Sun had... A racial failing that Shang-Chi didn't. What? He was black. Raised from an African village that grew evil fungi for Fu Manchu. One child was recovered and raised to become the Midnight Sun. S-O-N. Because bad puns are always evil. Um, and Midnight Sun becomes, you know, essentially the one of the two characters is potentially really a nemesis of Shang-Chi. Not the one we're going to see in the movie, apparently. So I'm not going to talk about that guy a lot today. I'm going to talk about him more in the movie. Um, 
or, or the movie episode next week where we go from Marvel Knights forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what this also represents is note that historically the agents of Fu Manchu were thuggies and assassins and and gangsters. Here we have more colorful comics appropriate characters like Midnight Sun. Now, Shang-Chi was so popular that he wasn't even limited to one comic. Uh, They very quickly began producing a magazine called The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, which featured Shang-Chi, among many other things. And we have the first issue up here. It was released in April. It was done by Marvel, but they didn't really brand it as Marvel. And it was done as a magazine, large format instead of a smaller comic book for spinner racks. Um, And you can see here on the table of contents, yes, we have a black and white Shang-Chi story. We also have an article about Bruce Lee. We have nonfiction articles. We have a backup story with the three tigers who become a core part of the Kung Fu mythology at Marvel and include a black man. Um, So we... It's an interesting little magazine thing. And this was long-running. Shang-Chi spearheaded the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu for a long, long time. Now, as the series went on, we're going to jump forward to issue 34 in 1975, uh, the creative team changed. A new artist came in named Paul Gullacy. Um, and he returned in 2003 for the Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu series, along with the writer Doug Monarch. He came back for that 2003 series, too. Uh, so they did Master of Kung Fu back in the, from issue 34 onward for like eight years, and then both came back together for the 2003 miniseries. Uh, at this point, it kind of stopped being a martial arts wandering the world looking for his father to stop his father thing and became more of this martial arts espionage. He ended up with a female lover from MI6, the British Secret Service, named Lieko, who was part Chinese, um, and became heavily involved in a lot of non-Fu Manchu-related plots. And we saw around this time, they started dropping the byline of sporting characters by Sax Romer, and started dropping that off. Now, at some point, I'm not sure exactly when, I think at this point they were simply de-emphasizing it, but they were still using Fu Manchu. But at some point, they lost the rights to the Sax Romer's characters, so they could not say Fu Manchu anymore. And they could not use any of the Fu Manchu characters, but they could still use Shang-Chi because he was their creation, but they could no longer refer to him as the son of Fu Manchu. Um, Now, during this time period... Marv Wolfman was editing. Marv Wolfman is an incredible influence in the history of comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hench, you know, we talked about the original Fu Manchu henchmen being, you know, kind of realistic figures, pulp realistic anyway. Uh, and then they became more colorful for comics. Well, starting with 34, they took it up another notch. And here we see a cover of these Napoleonic soldier robots that Fu Manchu is fighting. So we're moving it up another notch of comics realism. What's up with his arms in the cover? On the cover there? Yeah, his arms? One's a lot more bigger and muscly and the other skinnier. Well, I'm going to talk about that a little bit here in the next uh, slide. This is a close-up of 
Shang-Chi by the new artist. And, you know, he had a lot of style, but I wouldn't say anatomy was his strongest point. Uh, I mean, his neck there is a good, like, 10, 12 inches above his body. Um, he's so muscular there and so ripped that he'd have, like, 0.001% body fat. Like, if he forgot to take a snack, he'd fall over dead. Because uh, he has no body reserves to draw from. And it, anatomy was not his best point. I mean, it was like hyper-anatomy. But it was stylistic. We'll give it that. His skin's so yellow. I know. Uh, well, at least it was yellow. Unlike, you know, that appearance of uh, uh, Black Panther where they made him white. True, that is an improvement. So, now, at the same time that Shang-Chi... Uh, was in the main Marvel's universe, they didn't cross him over a whole lot. I mean, they did want to take advantage of his popularity, but they didn't feel a need to put him alongside regular Marvel characters often. There were a few exceptions. For example, Giant Size Spider-Man number two uh, that came out within a few years of uh, Shang-Chi's first appearance. Uh, they made Shang-Chi the other main character. Of course, in great Marvel tradition, uh, Spider-Man and Shang-Chi initially have conflict and fight because they're set up by Fu Manchu, by the way. He framed each of the other for a crime. Okay. But then they figure it out and become friends and team up against Fu Manchu. Mm -hmm. And we see that here. Uh, Fu Manchu is watching his monitor and going, So, all goes well. Spider-Man lays the deaths of those moolish fools at the feet of Shang-Chi, which is as is intended to be. Since first he learned of my true purpose in this life, to establish world order under my domination, Shang-Chi has sought to thwart me at every turn, an offense I will tolerate from no one. Least of all, my own son, the son of Fu Manchu. At least they fixed the stupid mask thing. Oh no, that was the Mandarin. Oh, okay. That, that's Shang-Chi's new daddy. In the movies. Okay. This is a tale of two dads. <laughs> Alright? Except they didn't this separate. This isn't... Okay. No. This is retcon, not San Francisco. Okay. Alright. Um, now, while all this is happening... Uh, oh, by the way, there was an, uh, a crossover. Do Dr. Doom did show up uh, around issue 60. And the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu also... Uh, as he kind of tests out the son of his adversary, Fu Manchu. Uh, another crossover they had was when Shang-Chi ran into Power Fist. Uh, uh, or, sorry, Iron Fist. Um, the often partner of Power Man, Power Man and Iron Fist. And another martial artist, a white boy who inherits the ancient Chinese martial arts of Kunlun. Because... Whenever you have a Chinese people that need to be saved, it's always going to be some honky who does it. Um, and here they team up because they want to combine it. Mm -hmm. um, and it, You know, I'm not saying that Shang-Chi wandering around in crimson robes didn't look a little silly, but compared to this weird-ass golden green outfit uh, of Iron Fist... He, he looks downright cool. Just saying. Uh, now, all this continued. 
uh, until the early 80s, when the series finally ended with issue 125. I think it was 1983. You can tell the issue just by the cover? Yes. And we see here Shang-Chi has uh, taken off his robes and is walking away from them. The finale of Shang-Chi uh, was very appropriate. He, His father is dead, Fu Manchu is finally gone, and he has several issues dedicated to contemplating what has happened to him from a you know mystical standpoint of coming to understand his own life and studying his own emotional and mental state. And then he leaves to join a fishing village and retire and just live a simple life. Hmm. An appropriate, wonderful end. And done in a way that I don't think they would let characters do it these days. I mean, several issues with no real action, just him revisiting moments of his life. Yeah, probably wouldn't pass. Yeah. Uh, now, I will say, I'm going to jump forward a little bit here to 2018. I'm going to cheat a little bit. Uh, when Marvel did their uh, Legacy Now thing, they did an issue 126 of Master of Kung Fu. And did a kind of funny issue with Shang-Chi's day off. Where Shang-Chi fights these cultists who are trying to do weird surgery things. And there's a monkey. And monkey. It's, a fun, it's a fun issue. Um, but it's not very serious. But it, if you were to read them in order. And technically issue 126 comes after 125. Although there's a lot in between the two. It does underscore the huge difference that's happened. Because Shang-Chi, up through Marvel Knights, which is this class session, was very much a street-level martial arts character. Shang-Chi, from Marvel Knights onward, became an Avenger and a high-level superhero, and which we're going to see with the Shang-Chi movie. He's going to become one of the premier ranks of the Marvel characters. Um, now, they did bring Shang-Chi back, five years after his last appearance in 125, uh, in Marvel Comics Presents. Now, remember, he was introduced in Marvel Comics Presents. Well, they relaunched Marvel Comics Presents with collections of short stories about characters, and they brought a story where Shang-Chi came back from his little rural world and was brought back into the world by finding out uh, that... Well, I don't want to spoil it for readers. Anyway, he's brought back into the world to deal with threats from MI6 again. Okay. And he's basically pulled back into the world that he thought he'd left. It's an interesting issue. The art's kind of muddled. Honestly, the writing was kind of slipshod. Uh, it wasn't a great reintroduction for him. Um, but we... It was five years. I mean, keep in mind. So we're now talking about this character who's going to be one of the the big major Marvel characters of the cinematic universe. And when his series was left off and they had Contest of Champions, they didn't even bother to put him in the text listing. And it's five years before he has an appearance again at all. So he has a loyal following, but he's definitely not at this point a major character. Mm -hmm. And then we jump forward a couple more years to Marvel Knights. Now, this was an initiative... By Marvel to reintroduce uh, some urban gritty characters. During this time period, 
there was a lot of interest in sort of the dark and gritty characters like the Punisher, Daredevil, moving Daredevil away from cheap theatrics to the defender of Hell, Hell's Kitchen and that kind of stuff. You know, stories told in a modern urban setting. And they introduced Shang-Chi as part of this. And we see this cover with Dazzler, uh, Black Widow, Punisher, Daredevil, and Shang-Chi in the bottom. Uh, who, who's, you know, Ringo Starr called and he wants that haircut back. Um, now, unfortunately, Marvel Knights did not really do Shang-Chi justice. Um, his father showed up and constantly tried to kill him. But it was like filler. It, you know, so other characters had plot lines around their character while bad guy shows up, sends somebody to kill Shang-Chi, and then is gone again. It, it felt like they didn't have a plot for Shang-Chi, but they wanted him in the book, and so it was what they could figure out to do. Um, and when... He shows up on this next slide. We see this figure who is Fu Manchu, essentially, with, you know, this thug behind him and two attractive women kind of at his feet. And that long clawed hand is sitting on a globe. He's covered in shadows, but you see that big brow. And he ref talks, he refers to himself as Shang-Chi's father. But not Fu Manchu. Because they've lost the rights to Fu Manchu. Mm -hmm. So you don't see the mustache. His face is covered in shadows. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't call himself anything. Third dad, possibly? No, no, just... They lost the rights to Fu Manchu. And here we see another instance of it. They keep his face mostly hidden. He has the, a harem. He has harem guards. Um... But he doesn't refer to himself as Fu Manchu, but he clearly is continuing that same tradition of that spidery-like mastermind figure. Um, it, it's an interesting balancing act. In fact, uh, they recently have dealt with those rights from the Saxe-Romer estate, but for many years, because they could not reproduce anything mentioning Fu Manchu, they could not publish old collections of Shang-Chi. Because they all mentioned Fu Manchu. Mm -hmm. Now, moving forward into Black Panther, which was also restarted as part of the Marvel Knights line, uh, we had Shang-Chi show up for several issues, starting with number 11 in 2006. Now, the cover I have up here is an homage to an image I showed earlier, Enter the Dragon. This is an homage to the movie poster for Enter the Dragon, oh. showing Shang-Chi in the pose that Bruce Lee took for the movie poster. Um, and it's awesome. It is, this is one of the best covers in comicdom, in my opinion. I love the colors. It is amazing colors. Um, and it, there's a joke here played. Now, I've split up a couple of panels from a page to make them more readable on the screen. But on one, uh, Black Panther is talking to Luke Cage and he says, Of course, he is the original scheming Asian warlord that dreams... Of conquering the world. He is the infamous Fu. And he's cut off. Because he can't say Fu Manchu. That is Christopher Priest. The writer of Black Panther. Having a little bit of fun with it. 
It always seems like he has a little bit of fun. Christopher Priest is an amazing writer. I will read anything he writes. Seriously. Um, now, we get the figure, and he has that Fu, Man Fu Manchu mustache. They're showing him, uh, unlike they did in Marvel Knights. And he says, uh-uh-uh. He's the one that interrupts T'Challa. I no longer go by that name. It was a silly title given to me by ignorant Westerners that simply meant Man of Manchu Dynasty. Notice he doesn't say Fu Manchu. says it meant Man of Manchu Dynasty without naming it. Every hundred years or so, I like to do a makeover. Now, as the Americans say, I am simply, and he says, Han. Han. Right. Which is both a name and a name of an ethnic group in China. Um, and, and it should be noted that he has access to elixirs that have extended his life, so he's very ancient and that kind of thing. Okay. Which is very much taking his plotline a bit away from Fu Manchu. Uh, and we find out the reason he's here is he wants to marry off his daughter to T'Challa, the Black Panther. And he says, meet Kwai Far, my daughter, a precious flower that will make your wildest dreams come true. This really isn't important terribly to Shang-Chi. Uh, she does not, she shows up a few more times related to Shang-Chi, but not much. But it was a great twist and I loved it in the comics, so I'm sharing it with Feels everyone. Feels a little creepy though. Well, yeah, I mean, Han is a creepy old man. Um, and we see some pages. We see this art of Shang-Chi. Now, we talked about that hyper-muscular art of him before. Here again, we have extreme definition. Muscles are just jumping off him as he's in a traditional martial arts stance. But it's pulled back a little bit. It's not that extreme ridiculousness we saw before. Uh, he looks tough. He looks like he's made of stone, and he will kick your ass. Mm -hmm. Um it's not the best art ever, but I thought it was pretty good. I'm just happy he's not pure yellow. Yeah, and we definitely see shading to his skin. Mm -hmm. um, now, keep in mind also, printing was higher quality by 2006 than it had been in the 1970s. Some of the flatness of colors in the 1970s was based on limitations of how the art was made and how it was printed. Um, now, a little shade also gets thrown. Remember we talked about Iron Fist a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. Um as Luke Cage meets Shang-Chi for the first time, he goes, Now who's that? T'Challa goes, Shang-Chi. Han's son. Iron Fist never introduced you? Nope. Interesting. What? I mean no disrespect to your friend Iron Fist. His uh, chi is very powerful. But Shang-Chi is the master of Kung Fu. Are you saying uh, 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 Danny is hating on Shang-Chi? That's some bull. I'm not trying to cast aspirations on your friend. I'm just saying in the martial arts community, both are respected. But Shang-Chi... Whatever, man. I ain't trying to hear all that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I loved Christopher Priest throwing some shade down. Because at this point, Iron Fist was much better known as a character than Shang-Chi. Um, and Christopher Priest is throwing his preference down, which I share Christopher Priest's opinion, so, yeah. Uh, -huh. uh and this was a comic that really reintroduced elements of the African-American community to Black Panther as a title, and is riffing on that connection the African-American community has had to the Kung Fu culture in America. 
So that's the end of him through Marvel Knights, Shang-Chi through Marvel Knights. Now, again, if you want to get a hold of me, rogan.hamby at gmail.com or on Twitter at roganhamby, R-O-G-A-N-H-A-M-B-Y. Um, next week, we're going to pick up after Marvel Knights as Shang-Chi becomes an Avenger. As he's in Heroes for Hire, his involvement in Spider Island, a whole bunch of stuff. And we're going to tr travel through and also talk about what we know about the movie so far. And I think because of this important connection between the movies and the comics, after the whenever I see the movie, um, we may have a session where we break down the differences. But obviously, the there are some significant retcons and differences as they are leaving Fu Manchu out of the movies entirely. Uh, and doing some interesting differences with the Mandarin. Hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and definitely building up the Mandarin as a part of the Kung Fu mythology of Marvel. Hmm. Rather than somebody who just got a bunch of alien rings. So, that's all till next time. Hopefully I will not get sick again and we won't miss another week. Um, if we do, I could use a voiceover system and let a robot talk to you about comics, but probably not. Nah. Yeah. All right. So till next week, take it easy and 